Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today's topic is powerarchy, a new word to me, though I instantly recognized its parallel to monarchy, patriarchy, and anarchy. And when I saw Melanie Joy's newly released book, Powerarchy, Understanding the Psychology of Oppression for Social Transformation, I knew this was a topic deserving our delving. Melanie is a psychologist with some of her education coming through Harvard, and she's a deep thinker and activist. She wrote an earlier book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, an introduction to carnism. And she's clearly on a mission to do the kind of inspirational world healing work that we seek to lift up on Spirit in Action. Melanie Joy joins us by phone from Massachusetts. Melanie, I'm so very pleased to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure. You're somewhere in Plymouth, Massachusetts. That's not where you live, but it's right near Boston. Tell me a little bit about your connection with Massachusetts, because, you know, I'm a Wisconsin boy. I actually lived most of my life in Massachusetts, in Boston and Cambridge, and I moved to Berlin, Germany about five and a half years ago, so... I'm really a Bostonian at heart. Germany. Now, I, I have a friend who's really enamored with Berlin, Germany. He talks about the way of life over there is being much more preferred by him, let's say, than American life. Why did you go there, and how do you feel about the culture versus American culture? Uh, <laughs> how long do we have? Um, <laughs> I fell in love with a German. That's the long and the short of it. He was also a colleague of mine. We were working together. So one of us had to move, so it just made sense for the person who didn't speak the language of the country they were moving to to be the one to move. So... I moved to Germany, and I'm learning German as we speak. I'm still working on it. But my husband, he's now my husband. He uh, runs ProVeg International. He's the CEO of an organization. It's a food awareness, an international food awareness organization that focuses on food justice and animal protection and environmental protection. And again, about the culture there, Germany, what's the culture there like compared to what you see in the U.S.? The culture, I mean, it's it's a very interesting culture. I live in Berlin, which is different in many ways from the rest of the country, but they're very examined when it comes to social justice. Germans, in large part because of the history anyway, um, Germans really were held accountable, essentially, for what happened for the Holocaust. And so rather than slip into back into denial, which is what many nations do and many cultures do after having perpetuated an atrocity, and then, you know, then they're doomed to repeat it. Germans have really faced into this and, and really contended with their history and Holocaust education is part of their education. And so one of the things I really like about Germany is a willingness to engage with issues of social justice and a pretty strong commitment to never being a bystander to injustice. I find it very interesting. Your book is Powerarchy, Understanding the Psychology of Oppression for Social Transformation, and that seems very relevant 
because Germany did something different after World War II that was not done after World War I with vastly different consequences. I'm just curious if you see maybe in the German culture a difference, you know, less power over, more power with, or other strands of what you're talking about in powerarchy that have been put into play. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question that you ask. Yes and no. Like many cultures, German culture is it's complex, and there are a lot of facets to the culture. In some ways, Germans are much more individualistic than Americans are. You know, where Americans will talk to each other and make eye contact and are much more sort of tuned into the people around them and kind of trying to be more relational in terms of their immediate circles, even with strangers that they're encountering, the people who are in their immediate vicinity, Germans are are much more individualistic in that way. But on a collective level, politically, German politics are much more collectivistic and much more socially conscious than American politics are, certainly U.S. politics. That's very interesting. I have wondered why the aftermath of World War II was much more successful than World War I. And I think part of it was the idea after World War I was let's punish them, make them pay for their atrocities, which to some degree was dealt with very differently after World War II. I think as a psychologist yourself that perhaps you see a different psychology having been applied. Well, I see, and I mean, I'm not an expert on German history or on German culture even, even though I live there. What I do see is very much an awareness of the history, and I mean, the history in particular, the Holocaust and history surrounding World War II is still kept very much alive in the country kids get educated on the Holocaust. There's this idea that we have to remember, never forget, because there's an awareness that forgetting leads people to the tendency to, or increases the chances that an atrocity will be repeated and recreated. The name of your book, again, is Powerarchy, and I don't think that's a word I encountered before reading your book, although I see the very deep need for it. Where does the word come from? Is it your invention, or is it used elsewhere, and now the rest of the world's going to learn from you? (laughs) Well, it's a word that I coined to describe a system that I came to be aware of in my research and just my own experience as somebody who is working in social justice and working in animal rights. Basically, powerarchy is the word that I use to describe the belief system that conditions us to see certain individuals or groups as more worthy of moral consideration. That means of being treated with integrity, with compassion and respect than others. And the system causes us to act in ways, and this belief that some are more worthy of moral consideration than others causes us to act in ways that are relationally dysfunctional. What that means is ways that violate our integrity and harm the dignity of others and therefore lead to the feeling of disconnection between us. As I read the book, and I thought it was a very valuable book, very important, as the subtitle explains, it's about understanding the psychology of oppression for social transformation. And so there's a lot of explanation you're doing there. You're not so much looking at historical events, and you're not analyzing everybody's individual case, but you're laying out the aspects of, I think, powerarchy, what's going on in the world. Did I say that okay? Okay. 
Yeah, exactly. And I can say that I think one way to understand what powerarchy is is to think about what powerarchy looks like in your own life. We've all experienced it. We continually experience it. So, for example, try to think of a, a relationship in your life that you would consider a great relationship or a really good relationship. And in particular, think about your feeling of connection in that relationship. And chances are you feel connected with this other person. And when you think about your sense of dignity in that relationship, chances are you feel that this other individual honors your dignity, meaning they perceive you and treat you as though you're a fundamentally worthy being. And chances are also that they practice integrity toward you, meaning that they treat you the way that they would want to be treated if they were in your position. And so you probably feel empowered to be your better self. It's easier to be your better self in this relationship. And then if you think of a relationship in your life that's not good, you know, maybe it's a relationship that's over or a relationship with somebody that you've only had online, like with an online troll, probably you have exactly the opposite experience. Probably instead of feeling connected, you feel disconnected from them. And probably you don't feel that they honor your dignity, but rather they perceive and treat you as though you're less worthy of being treated with respect. And they don't practice integrity towards you. And chances are you struggle to be your better self. Maybe you don't even really like who you are when you're engaged in that relationship. So each of these relationships falls on a different side of a relational spectrum. One relationship is powerarchical, and the other relationship is a healthy relationship. It reflects healthy relationality. You know, all of us are members of these various relationships or systems. You know, a system can be as small as two people, so we call it a relationship, or it can be a workplace, a work culture, or it can be as big as a social system, such as that of a nation. And so each system we're a part of can be more or less powerarchical or more or less relationally dysfunctional or healthy. In the book, you talk about these relationships or this this kind of interaction happening on three different levels, including the intrapersonal within a person. You talk about how these practices and ways of thinking, and I think the damage that's done can happen at all three of those levels. You're a psychologist. Your degree, I think, is from Harvard. I actually, I was looking on site, and I wasn't quite clear you were trained at least partway at Harvard. Are there other schools that we should put in your retinue? Yeah, partway at Harvard and also at Saybrook Graduate School, where I studied social psychology, the psychology of violence and nonviolence. By the way, Melanie, I'm Quaker, so you, I'm pretty sure that'll tell you right away a number of the things about what I value, how I see the world, which means our outlook is pretty compatible. No, my family is Quaker, actually. Your family is, okay. Well, I should say a large part of my family is Quaker. Mm-hmm. Okay. So egalitarianism, which means respecting everybody, seeing that of God and everyone is the common Quaker phrase, kind of makes very natural what you are advocating for throughout the book. And I want to say I've also been a vegetarian since 1976, so quite a few years in on this, right? I find myself very tuned to the ideas, very receptive to many things you talk about, but still, I have to admit that as I was reading the book, I kept wanting to argue with you. (laughs) And I was very, I was trying to observe myself, figure out why I was having that reaction. 
Do you get this reaction from many people in spite of the fact that I think you're a very skilled communicator, a very empathic person? No, actually. Well, good. That's what I'd like to hear about the world. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, but I can only speak to my work up until this point. I haven't been, you know, Powerarchy only came out a month ago. So it's possible that people feel resistant to it. I, I don't know. I haven't had that reaction to other books that I've written, for sure. Or I'm sure I have, but it's not the dominant reaction. For at least 11 years, you taught courses at University of Massachusetts, things about privilege and oppression, feminist psychology, animal rights, all of these things. Maybe Boston is a bit different bubble than Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I happen to live. <laughs> but I recall back 43 years ago when I became vegetarian, I did not have a universally positive reaction to my vegetarianism. And I have to admit, I was a little obnoxious sometimes at the beginning. People would eat a hamburger and I'd go moo and be obnoxious in different ways like that. I long since discontinued that kind of behavior. But do you not get the pushback that I would expect on feminist psychology, animal rights, that kind of thing? In general, no, in part because I think the way that, I mean, of course, there are, sometimes people do get reactive, but that's very, it's, it's not nearly as common as people being receptive. And part of it is that people are self-selected, right? So the people who are, you know, attracted to the work that I'm doing or the work that my organization is doing, are, they're already interested in these issues. I mean, it's true, and as I write in Powerarchy, and to talk about when it comes to veganism and animal rights, you know, these systems, these powerarchies, powerarchy is a system like racism or sexism or speciesism, and it also can be, as we talked about earlier, as small as a, as a relationship, like an abusive relationship. These powerarchies, these large-scale powerarchies in particular, do condition us to feel resistant to information that challenges us to examine our privilege or power that we have in a powerarchy. Powerarchy basically conditions us to resist the very information that would get us out of the powerarchical box that we don't realize we're in. So an automatic reaction to having privilege challenged is often to feel defensive and to, and to want to argue, for sure. And actually, I was trained in argument because in high school and college, I was in debate. And I quit debate in part because I saw it was damaging my soul that I wanted to argue with everything, whether I felt moral worth or not in it. So I, I actually had to learn to step back. And I would say that my wife has told me a number of times that when she first met me, the thing she loathed most about interacting with me is when I went into debate mode. Certainly, that's a male thing to do in our culture, that that's a, a typical male culture. Women who were argumentative dealt with the B word, right? But men were just good, strong men if they argued. And of course, that's not something I ascribe to. Anyway, you're advocating for, I think, compassion. And one of the things, by the way, that you mentioned in your book, and you don't explain a lot about it, but I think you draw on it, is nonviolent communication. I'd like to spend some time later talking about nonviolent communication and the role that that plays in terms of actually finding a different path forward. But first, let's spell out some more things about that understanding of powerarchy that you, Melanie Joy, are spelling out in your book. The first thing that you'd actually mention in the book is about veganism and having compassion across species, I guess, is how I'd talk about it. Could you explain where this root value that you have that I think is behind your view of why powerarchy is so damaging? Well, 
you know, before I talk about the root value, or maybe I should first talk about the root value, I think we do know that humans, that, that most people share the core moral values of compassion and justice or of caring and fairness. You know, so these are pretty universal human values. And at the same time, powerarchies condition or powerarchy conditions us to act against these values. We also know that humans are hardwired, and some animals as well, are hardwired to connect with others. We're hardwired to seek meaningful connections and also to avoid the pain of disconnection. And we know that we're hardwired to feel empathy for others and that our feeling of empathy enables us to more fully connect with others. And powerarchy really requires and causes that we act against our core moral values and that we act against our natural drive to connect. So what I'm talking about in the book is how do we get back to, how do we reclaim, essentially, our freedom of thought, our freedom of choice, our ability to make choices and to move through the world in a more authentic way, in a way that reflects what we authentically think and feel and want rather than how we've been conditioned to move through the world. When you say get back to, I'm not sure where we're going back to. In the book, at one point, you talk about evolution, and I had this question as I was reading. Evolutionarily, uh, certainly empathy and compassion is part of the human being, but also there's other parts that are, I guess, divide us and that push us apart, that violence and antagonism and self-interest, all of those things are, are long-term roots. When you say get back to, what are you referring to? Where's this back to you're talking about? Well, we are conditioned to override our natural empathic impulse in many cases when we're talking about powerarchies. So maybe the most straightforward way for people to recognize what I'm talking about is when we look at our relationship with animals. When we look at the way, you know, children are with animals, the way that many of us were with animals, we have this natural urge to connect with them. When we see other animals, we want to touch them. We go to, you know, we have petting zoos that we take our children to. We want to connect with them. And yet, over the years, we become conditioned to eat animals. We become conditioned to actually disconnect from our natural empathy for animals, and we become conditioned to distort our perceptions when we see animals in the form, for example, of flesh, so that when we see a steak, you know, we don't see a dead animal. We see food, and we feel appetized. And if somebody told us that that steak actually didn't come from a cow but instead came from a golden retriever, many people would automatically feel disgusted and lose their appetite because we haven't been conditioned to disconnect from our natural empathy, in this culture anyway, for dogs. Actually, I had a really interesting situation. I was vegetarian before I went in the Peace Corps. I lived in West Africa. Togo was the country. I tried to explain to the people there why I was vegetarian, which they didn't understand because being able to eat meat, which is expensive relatively, that was a great privilege that they all aspired to. And so the fact that I would voluntarily choose not to participate in the killing of animals, they did not understand. And finally, <laughs> the thing that I found that worked best, in the southern part of Togo, dogs were pets, but cats were just meat from their point of view. In the northern part, it was flipped. 
that cats were pets and dogs were meat. And there's about 10% of the population at the time was Muslim, so they didn't eat pigs. So I said, well, they don't eat dogs, they don't eat cats, they don't eat pigs. I'm part of the super religion, I don't eat any of them. And that made perfect sense to them. (laughs) (laughs) So does your connection to, and it seemed this way in the book, your connection to compassion really grew a lot from connection with animals. I don't know, maybe it was with people before then as well. I mean, it's natural that it would be, but it seems to me that the concepts behind powerarchy arose out of an understanding of wider applying compassion that you experienced so clearly dealing with animals. I mean, I think you could say that I I come from a family, at least part of my family is Quaker and also very committed to social justice. So I do come from a family for whom human rights and social justice issues have always been important. And I also came into animal rights fairly early-ish on in my life when I was 23 years old. So my work, my earlier work was and has been focused on animals and on animal rights, and this certainly emerged out of my own personal experience. I grew up, like many people, with a dog who I loved like a family member, and I also grew up eating meat and eggs and dairy. I was like the meat lover's pizza girl. I, I got the meat <laughs> lover's pizza at Domino's, seriously. And for much of my life, you know, I never thought about how strange it was that I could pet my dog with one hand while I ate a pork chop with the other. You know, a pork chop that had once been an animal who was at least as intelligent and and sentient as my dog. I just, I did not make that connection. And of course, I was also a person, as I said, who really cared about justice and who would never willingly, like most people, who would never willingly participate in harm to animals, especially when that harm, you know, and the suffering it caused was so intensive and extensive and and completely unnecessary. And yet, of course, I was doing that on a daily basis through my dietary choices. And it wasn't until I got sick in 1989 after eating a contaminated hamburger. And I wound up on intravenous antibiotics at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. After that, I just stopped eating meat. And shortly thereafter, I actually became vegan. I started out vegetarian and then quickly became vegan. And As I was looking for information about my new diet and how to cook for myself, I, of course, learned about animal agriculture. And what I learned just shocked and horrified me. The the extent of the suffering was just, it was was staggering. And, And not to mention environmental degradation and the harm that I was causing to my own body. But what shocked me perhaps even more was that nobody I talked to about what I had learned was willing to hear what I had to say. You know, their response would be something like, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal, or they'd call me a crazy vegan hippie propagandist. (laughs) As if that was a bad thing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So this was really what led me to the research, actually, that led me ultimately to write Powerarchy. I studied the psychology of nonviolence and violence. I was very curious as to how rational, compassionate people, like I had been throughout my life, and, you know, my friends and family could just stop thinking and feeling when it came to eating animals. And, you know, how did we compartmentalize? You know, how do we compartmentalize? How is it that we're petting the pig in the petting zoo one minute, and then we're walking out of the supermarket next door with bacon the next, and we don't see the contradiction? And 
course, this is this compartmentalization. This is what I write about in Powerarchy. It doesn't just apply to how we relate to other animals. It applies to how we relate, period. And so my research led me to discover the Powerarchy that I came to name Carnism, the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. And as you point out, different species are consumed in different parts of the world. But the same mentality applies. People have the same relationship with eating animals. So, for example, in Korea, where my book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, which I write about carnism in, was published. So the first foreign language the book came out in was in Korean. And I was on a speaking tour there talking about carnism. And as you may be aware, some people anyway... Korea eat dogs. Yes, I knew that was coming. (laughs) But they don't eat all dogs. So when I would talk about eating animals, I would say, imagine that you're eating meat and somebody tells you that it's a Maltese. And that was shocking and horrifying because nobody would eat Maltese. Maltese are for pets. It's other kinds of dogs that are for food. So the powerarchy that is carnism causes us to compartmentalize. And essentially what it does is it causes us to disconnect from our natural empathy and our authentic perceptions when it comes to those animals that we've learned to classify as edible. But this is what all powerarchies do. When we look at all systems of oppression, you know, racism and sexism and speciesism and also at abusive systems such as an abusive relationship or or work culture, they all have the same basic makeup. They all reflect and reinforce the very same mentality. This is the powerarchical mentality that's at the core of oppression and abuse in our world today. And this mentality is organized around the belief in a hierarchy of moral worth, that certain individuals or groups are more worthy of moral consideration of being treated with respect than others. So Really, when we talk about oppression, we tend to talk about oppression, you know, to look at oppression through the lens of politics and economics and philosophy, ideology, and so forth. And, of course, these lenses matter. They help us see different aspects of oppression. But we also need to look at oppression through the lens of relationships because it's not enough to just look at who is oppressing whom. That's the content. That's the what of oppression. We need to look at the process of oppression. We need to ask why and how we oppress in the first place. Because on a deeper level, oppression reflects and reinforces relational dysfunction. That's a a dysfunction or a problem in how we relate as social groups, as individuals, to other animals, and also to the environment, and as you pointed out earlier, even to ourselves. Those are extremely valuable things that Melanie Joy is talking about, and that's why we have her here today for Spirit in Action. On the web, you find us at northernspiritradio.org. On that site, you find all kinds of useful information, including the 40-some stations nationwide where our program's carried. You'll find links to our guests and their sites. So when you want to find Melanie Joy's work, powerarchy.org is there if you're spelling challenged like I am. I think you can spell nordenspiritradio.org and you'll get to Melanie's site. Carnism is another site that she has, carnism.org. And we have this for all of our guests of the last 14 years on nordenspiritradio.org. We also have a place for you to post comments. And so you're listening to this program and you have a reaction. Come and give that reaction. Post a comment on our site and also rate the programs, all of them. We've got invaluable world healing workers for the world that we've been talking to for the last 14 
15 years, it'd be well worth your time to spend some time getting to know them. There's also a donate button. That's how this full-time work is supported. We're not like the corporate media and even public radio is different. It's not government and corporations that support us. It's you, the listener. So click that if you can when you come and donate. But even before you donate to us, please support your local media. And here I'm especially thinking of your local community radio station. Wonderful alternative news and music that you get nowhere else. Start by supporting them. Again, Melanie Joy is here, Dr. Melanie Joy. And by the way, Melanie, I tend not to use use honorifics, including doctor, because I'm a radical egalitarian. <laughs> if I if I meet the president of the United States, I'd be on a first name basis with everybody. And I know that that's problematic sometimes in foreign countries, as you mentioned, the Germans do not treat you buddy buddy immediately upon meeting you. It's <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, please do not be offended when I refer to you as Melanie, because I can see you everybody on the planet, part of my circle of friends. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. My preference is to be called Melanie, so it works well for me. And I'm very glad to meet you, Melanie. Let's talk some more about some of the dynamics that go into some of the operational systems that go into supporting powerarchies. In the book, you lay out analysis of power from many different directions, how we deal with power, the psychology behind it, how it gets distorted. We talk about privilege. And I want to include some of those bits. But of course, what I really want is for people to go and read Powerarchy, Understanding the Psychology of Oppression for Social Transformation, because we're really after social transformation here. That's kind of the big overarching goal that we have. The one piece that I found myself arguing with, and again, this is although I'm a vegetarian and have been and am firmly dedicated to it for the rest of my life, is if it's because of compassion, connection with an animal, be it a dog or a pig or a cow or whatever, how far should that compassion extend? Are there limits to it? I do have the practice, by the way, Melanie, and this might strike some people as a little bit crazy. When a mosquito's on me, drawing my blood, I say, go to God, and I kill them. And, you know, a lot of people consider it absolutely foolish to extend compassion beyond mammals or whatever. Should there be some limit on compassion? Well, I guess my question would be, why should there be some limit on compassion? Because of self-interest and because of evolution. I mean, I think that Homo sapiens succeeded maybe the Neanderthals because that was the next step on the way. Now, I imagine you can still do it compassionately, but we don't equate the level of interest as it gets further from us. I have a friend, for instance, who said, uh, you know, he's not a vegetarian, but he doesn't eat mammals. Or people draw various lines of distance. And we have no problem when our self-interest is involved in killing diseases or parasites as we conceive of them in our body. So anyway, I, my question is, if compassion is the item, how far should compassion go? We certainly don't want to ignore our self-interest, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I write in the book, you know, as we work toward and we move toward a more relationally functional world, there will be naughty problems to unravel. We've been born into a world that is just so deeply dysfunctional, and we've really inherited a mess. We didn't create this mess, but we've inherited it, and now we have to decide how we're going to relate to this mess. And so what this means is that we 
you know, have to make choices living in the world as it is that are probably very different than the choices that we would or could make if we were living in a more ideal world. So, for example, you know, I, I get this question with vegans are feeding their rescued cats meat because the cats can't live on vegan food. Well, that's one of those messy situations that we have to deal with. You know, I, I like to think of the way the Buddha described it, which is about these are not Buddha's words, but the concept is try to do as little harm as possible while you are living a life that's sustainable. So, you know, life is suffering, as Buddha said. You have to live, you have to eat to survive. How can you eat, for example, he was using eating as an example, how can you eat in a way that does the least harm possible? Eating plants, obviously, at least we know today that eating plants is a way to do less harm but we still have to eat in order to survive. So I also think about what the philosopher Tom Reagan said before, I think it was maybe the 1980s, maybe the 1990s anyway, before we had the definitive science that we have today demonstrating that certain fish and crustaceans are in fact sentient, having the ability to feel pleasure and pain. And there was a debate about, well, you know, certain fish and crustaceans, anyway, they were seen as sort of anomalous plants. You know, people would call themselves vegetarian but still eat fish. And Regan said, well, you know, we don't know, but when the stakes are so high, better to err on the side of caution. So what this all means is people ask me, where do you draw your line around your circle of compassion? Like, how far do you take this? And, and my response is always, it's not where I draw my personal line that matters to me. It's how I relate to my line. Am I committed to trying to be a person who does less harm on this planet? You know, am I committed to living my integrity to the best of my ability? And I think you are. Could you talk a little bit about power over and power with? Because understanding that is fundamental to being able to live out a different way that actually will attain the social transformation, which is dear to many of us. Well, social scientists, when looking at power, generally talk about two different models of power that we can employ two different ways of, of using power or relating to power that we can choose to employ. And again, it's not either or, but you can imagine these on a spectrum like I described earlier, the relational spectrum. And so on one end is what's commonly referred to as, as power over. This is called the dominance model. And in this model of power, we feel more powerful when we take power from another or when we wield power over another or when we compare ourselves with another and we perceive ourselves as better than, prettier than, smarter than, or, or whatever. So we derive our sense of power and often our sense of self-worth from having more than others. What this means is that in order for us to feel better about ourselves, essentially, our tendency will be to demean others, to put somebody else down. So in order for me to feel better about who I am, I'll look for somebody I can compare myself to or create somebody who is less than, put somebody down in order to prop myself up or take what somebody else has to accumulate power for myself. So this is, some people say, a win-lose model or I would describe it, and some people do describe it, as a lose-lose model. In this model, we all lose because, as I said earlier, most of us really are seeking meaningful connection and most of us really do want to feel like we're living moral lives. And that is not the case when we're operating from within a power-over model. Most people can relate to this. You know, we might get into a 
an argument with somebody who puts us down and in response to this we put them down, say it's our domestic partner and we're, you know, having a back and forth. Well, you know, at least I didn't fail out of my freshman seminar and the person says, well, at least I didn't lose my job last year and so on and so forth and eventually one person delivers the zinger that hits the other one so hard they back down. And in the end, both are feeling pretty lousy because they are now disconnected and feel like they've violated their integrity and caused harm to each other and to their relationship. And the power with model is the opposite. It's where we feel more empowered and feel more worthy when we help others to feel more worthy and empowered themselves. Sometimes this is called the functionalist model. I certainly leaned very strongly towards the functionalist, the power with way of living, being. And yet this is one of those places where I found myself arguing with you. Part of it is I'm also a scientist. I taught physics at university level. So I do tend to think in an ordered way. And I think one of the facts in the world is that competition for resources that what goes on in evolution, what natural selection does, is that those who perform the best persist and multiply. And so you made a comment in the book which you said evolutionarily there may have been more role, I think, maybe for power over or this kind of competition, but that it makes less sense these days. And I find that particularly true in terms of what I eat, that with the abundance that we have available to us, that it's very easy to choose to eat a vegan diet as opposed to just getting whatever food you can into your body to survive. So do you see as something as changing evolutionarily with respect to the species on the planet, in particular people? Well, I mean, we can look at behaviors that we've engaged in since the beginning of humanity, which, you know, behaviors such as murder and rape, and say, well, this is natural, this is what we've done, this is what we've always done, and recognize that today, now that we have social systems and we have evolved to a place where we can make conscious choices, such behaviors are no longer considered acceptable, even remotely acceptable, at least in many places in the world. And and certainly, um, we are now in a position, and I should say even earlier, I mean, humans are social animals. So, you know, we didn't survive by putting our own self-interest first. We, we survived also by ensuring that we remained a part of the tribe and that our tribe remained strong. But Certainly, you know, with functional social scientists have, have pointed out that given the evolution of complex social organization, social intelligence, these behaviors that we have, you know, these power over behaviors have become largely dysfunctional. These are behaviors that harm relationships and that harm societies. They damage the systems of which we are a part. And as a psychologist, you're very aware of that. But further beyond that, you work for social transformation. And I was very, very excited to see that you were the eighth recipient of the AHIMSA Award. Could you tell me a little bit about that? The Institute of Jainology, which is, you're probably familiar with Jains. Sure. Or religious sect and group, and they practice nonviolence, ahimsa nonviolence. They have an award, the ahimsa award, um, that they give to people who have worked for and towards nonviolence. And so they had awarded me this back in 2013, 14, I think it was. 
Congratulations for that. Talk about our true honor to be recognized in that way, recognized for Ahimsa, and my appreciation for the amount of work that you've done that people have learned from what you've been teaching was really enhanced when I saw that you got that award. Well, thank you. Well, let's talk about a few more things. I I do want to get as much of this in so people have a basis to start reading Pararchy. And again, the subtitle, Understanding the Psychology of Oppression for Social Transformation by Melanie Joy. She's, amongst other things, Harvard-educated psychologist, taught at University of Massachusetts for 11 years, Privilege, Oppressions, Feminist Psychology, Animal Rights. Uh, her website that you should probably go to right now is powerarchy.org, and you can find the links, of course, on nordenspiritradio.org. A very important mechanism of powerarchy and of dominance is privilege. Could you say a few words about privilege and people read the book to get the full flesh? Yeah, privilege is one way that powerarchies keep themselves alive. And a privilege is an advantage given to one individual or one group that's denied to others. And this, what it does is it ensures that a power imbalance stays in place and it makes it harder to close that gap. So, so for example, or I should back up and say I hadn't mentioned earlier, but powerarchy is structured to maintain and often grow power imbalances. So if you look at the powerarchy of sexism or, or patriarchy, for example, there's a power imbalance between men and women and people of other genders. Or if you look at an abusive relationship, which is a smaller scale powerarchy, there's a power imbalance between the person who's abusing and the person who's being abused. And privileges are advantages that are granted to those who are in positions of power that help keep them on top, help keep them holding on to the advantages of the power that they have and make it harder to close that gap. Actually, this is, I think, one of the places where I was doing a lot of arguing with myself. And again, I believe in your message overall and the things that you're advocating for. But there's this this deep question that I've had within myself that I've asked myself and argued with myself about power. Are we saying power is bad and that people should self-limit their power? And so for men, men are physically strong uh, on average more so than females. I think there's different biological things that lead to that, as well as the training that we do in life, which unnecessarily handicaps women. My question really is if somehow we should shame people for having power or what's the correct way to use power? And again, I'm viewing this partly with the evolutionary lens that power actually determines which is best. The best students do best, go on to become the best psychologists or computer programmers or whatever, that it's normal power exists and that somehow saying people should perform below their level of power, whatever that is, isn't clear to me. And again, I've wrestled with this internally. I think you might be referring to ability versus power. Is that fair to say? You might say that. But so, for instance, at one point, it was said that we don't want someone as charismatic as you are working in this situation. We'd rather have just average people. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange. And it's not like I'm using my power in any way inappropriately. But the fact that I'm charismatic, which many people will dispute, you understand that that, I think, was a question of power. And so 
if someone is uh, really good at math, should we preference them in going into schools and doing work and getting hired for a job? So there's privileges, I think, that come out of having extra abilities. And so, yeah, there is a difference between ability and power, but sometimes, the and I think this is maybe not what you're saying, but part of the message is, well, if you do that too well, then you're shaming other people. I mean, I think what you might be referring to is earned privilege versus unearned privilege, where earned privilege is you pass a test, you demonstrate that you have the ability to drive a car, and you pass a test and you get you have the privilege of earning a driver's license. And what I'm talking about and the problem that I'm describing and that people who talk about oppression in general are describing is a problem of unearned privilege, of privilege that's granted to somebody not because they have earned it, but simply because they have been born into a social group that has given them unfair advantages, given them advantages that have been denied to others to make it easier for them to get ahead, regardless of their ability. So when we're talking about white privilege, for example, we're not talking about privilege that was earned. We're talking about privilege that people have simply because they're a member of a particular social group. And part of my study of this, by the way, has been books like Guns, Germs, and Steel, trying to understand why privilege came to certain areas. And is it related to simply the myths that are used to buttress privilege, or is it actually out of abilities? Is it, What is it that has led to these imbalances? And so I, I'm trying to do, ask some pretty deep questions. And sometimes power comes because the German people were much better able to work together and efficiently than the Irish, which is maybe where more my ancestry comes from my wife's descended largely from German people. <laughs> so part of my question is, what has led to these relative levels of power? And a lot of times I think it's related to actual ability. And of course, there's a myth also that goes with it that says then if you're a German, if you're Aryan, that you're good and everybody else is of inferior moral worth and we get to kill them, right? Right. So there's problematic whenever we think about power. Right. And when we look at the way these systems of oppression are structured, they are structured to ensure that those who are privileged and at the top of the so-called powerarchy stay there. You know, really what the problem is, power is a complicated concept, obviously. What I'm talking about in my book is how power is allocated. You know, oppression is the unjust allocation and use of power. And also how we relate to power. I think the most important thing to take away from the book is, or one of the most important things I think to take away, especially as we think about our relationship with power, is that the powerarchical mentality is the mentality that causes us to perceive of others, or sometimes ourselves, as you pointed out when we're relating to ourselves powerarchically, as morally inferior, as not deserving of being treated with respect and with kindness. And this is where we really get into trouble. And one of the ways that you can tell that you're under the influence of the powerarchical mentality is to notice if you're feeling one of the emotions of contempt or shame. 
Contempt is an indication that we placed ourselves in a position of moral superiority, and shame is an indication that we're perceiving ourselves as morally inferior. And these are the two sides of the powerarchical coin. You know, these are emotions that only exist in relationship or only exist in comparison. When we're comparing ourselves with others or with an idealized or demonized version of ourselves, And the antidote to both of them is empathy. It is difficult, if not impossible, to look down on or or up at someone if we're looking at the world through their eyes. So the real issue is how do we relate to power? What kind of a mentality are we bringing into our lives, into our relationships? And how is this affecting our ability to connect and our ability to create essentially a functional democracy and healthy, resilient social justice movements that can challenge the powerarchies that exist. And what I really liked the best in your book was the last chapter. It's called Beyond Oppression. And I really liked it because it felt to me like it provides excellent guidance in making decisions and doing the work of social transformation. And the background in the first seven chapters of the book were very valuable. It's good foundation on which to understand things. But when I got to eight, I said, here's how I get to put it into a play. And so I want to thank you for the eighth chapter, which really tied things together for me. My hope always with Spirit in Action is that we're going to provide inspiration for people to get a better future. And so this, I felt very concretely in some ways, gave me and will give any of the readers of Powerarchy the ability to do things better. But I did have a question that ended up, even at the end of the book, I said, where have we seen this functioning well? Have we seen whatever the opposite of powerarchy at play? Where have we seen it functioning the best? Do you have any, maybe not entire nations, but maybe cultures, groups, areas, maybe families, I don't know, that seem to get it right? Well, I mean, it's a good question. So, you know, like I said earlier, we have inherited quite a messy, complicated world. And, you know, we're fairly young. And our, our level of, uh, our collective level of relational literacy is really quite low. Relational literacy is the understanding of an ability to practice healthy ways of relating. And it's really the antidote to powerarchy in many ways. And our collective level of relational literacy is quite low. Most of us haven't learned the principles and tools for how to relate healthfully. These tools are out there. I've actually written a book on relational literacy that comes out in February because I feel so strongly that relational literacy is central to social transformation as well as personal transformation. So the information is out there, but most of us haven't learned it. We haven't been taught it in school, for sure. So I think the examples are few and far between simply because many of us, we're not at the point in the evolution of humanity where this is the kind of thing that's built into our school curricula. We can see examples when we look at healthy family systems or healthy interpersonal relationships or healthy workplaces. And, you know, some countries are more functional than others, or at least they're more relational than others. Some of the Scandinavian countries come to mind for Maine. And cultures are, you know, they're complex. They can be more powerarchical in some aspects and less so in others. Like we were talking about Germany earlier. You know, Germany is, I think, less powerarchical than the United States when it comes to their policies and legislation. Interpersonally, they're often less relational. 
So going back to the example that I gave earlier, when you think of a healthy relationship or a great relationship in your life, that's the template for what a system of integrity, which is the opposite of a powerarchy, what it looks like. And there's so much more that we could go into. There's one last question I want to ask you, Melanie, before we go off. And that is, you're living in Germany at the moment. What's your take on the level of functionality, the relational, what powerarchy or the reverse, what trends have been happening in the United States? And you could say since the election of Donald Trump, or you can go further back, has there been a movement in our society in a positive or negative way overall? Oh, there's no question that the president, he's the poster child for powerarchy. You know, and his very toxic, powerarchical attitudes and behaviors of communication is, there's no question that it's normalizing toxic communication and non-relationality for the public and, and really feeding this, uh, I would say, epidemic of toxic communication for sure in the country. I also think that as a result of this election, people have as well really banded together and are really forming resistance movements that are really important to challenging the existing powerarchies, including the existing administration. And I think there's been a sense of mobilization and, and passion that's been revived since the election of the president, of President Trump. I also think it's very important for those of us who are working towards social transformation to really understand powerarchy so that we don't end up becoming the very thing that we're working to transform. Because one of the problems that we are facing now, especially with the normalization of this toxic communication and also with the, you know, the level of frustration and often despair and moral outrage so many people are feeling because of what's going on in the world. And of course, these emotions are, are normal and appropriate responses. And if we don't recognize them for what they are, emotions, and we don't recognize powerarchy for what it is, we really are at risk of adopting and using the very tactics, powerarchical tactics, to work toward transformation that we're trying to transform in the first place. We're at risk of cannibalizing ourselves and our movements if we're not careful to not reproduce this powerarchical mentality and way of relating. I'm exactly in that same spot. That's how I see the world going. And I so appreciate that you look into the bones and the flesh that put together this body of what is called powerarchy. You spell it out in the book, Powerarchy, Understanding the Psychology of Oppression for Social Transformation. That's not the only book that Melanie Joy has written. Folks, please do remember to check out her book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. And there's also another book that we didn't even talk about, Melanie, Getting Relationships Right, How to Build Resilience and Thrive in Life, Love, and Work, and Coming on Relational Literacy. So there's a lot of reading you have on your homework list now, folks. So please do go to powerarchy.org, the links on nordenspiritradio.org. Follow the links to Melanie's work and her ideas carnism.org, other sites, you're going to be richer and the world, I think, will be better as we all gain the intelligence that we need, the knowledge to live out better lives and make this world a better place. And I thank you for doing that work, Melanie. And thank you for doing that work. Again, folks, you can find all of this on northernspiritradio.org. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action.
The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. And our lives will feel the echo of our healing.